Welcome to this podcast by the Allergy, Immunology, and Inflammation Assembly of the American Thoracic Society. This podcast is entitled, Should I Stay or Should I Go?, and is the second of a two-part series examining the transition process between institutions. This podcast targets clinicians and researchers toward the end of their training or beginning of their post-training years. In this podcast, we hear the experiences and advice of a senior research investigator, Dr. Jane Dang, regarding the actual process of changing institutions, including interviews and startup package negotiation. If you haven't already, I encourage trainees and junior faculty to listen to the first part of this podcast, which lays out many of the important considerations for deciding whether to stay or move on from the institution at which you trained. This podcast was released at the end of November. We will now resume the second part of this podcast. Um, So I think many people would consider what we just discussed sort of a quote-unquote first-look job interview, uh, which is very different from a second-look job interview. So uh, assuming one wants to go on one of these, first of all, would you share your definition of a second-look job interview and what your approach is to that? Yeah, I think for second-look job interviews, they um, generally are when you have thought things over and are serious about making that leap and taking the position. Um, When I prepare for a second look, I really try to meet as many people as I can at the new institution. I try to meet not only uh, the people who will be my supervisors and my chiefs um, to get to know their philosophy, but I also try to meet people who are sort of at my level, my stage of of career, so I can hear things from really their perspective. And I try to also keep in touch with these individuals so that I can really, you know, when it's not in the context of the interview day, I can contact them later and kind of hear, well, really, what is it like to work um, at this place? Um, The second job interview is also useful for hammering out a lot of the details of what your your day-to-day work will entail um, and also what resources they are willing to provide to support you, whether it's you know, in the clinical setting or in the research setting, um, of course, salary um, and startup packages also factor in um, during this, this period. And again, being completely open about what it is that's truly important to you and not being afraid to ask those, those difficult questions, um, I think is important. I think being perfectly honest about what it is that's really important to you is critical during a second-look job interview. For instance, you don't want to settle for, say, not having a technician if that's truly going to make or break your ability to to do the work that you want to perform at your new institution. And so this is, again, another important time to do some soul-searching about and being honest about what it is that you really need to succeed. Wherever you go, they have a vested interest in investing in you so that you will succeed, just like you have a vested interest in also succeeding because you're moving your your family, um, your lab, 
um, yourself to wherever this new place may be. And so it's important for both parties to be honest at this stage and, um, and seeing whether or not this is a, a working relationship that will result in the greatest success. Great. That's, um, that's really good insight. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, as a, as a follow-up, um, could you provide any words of caution uh, about approaching a second-look interview? For example, uh, can you comment specifically about using the second-look interview to receive uh, in writing startup packaging and salary to then use that to leverage uh, negotiations at your home institution? Actually, thanks for bringing that up. Um, I actually do think that that is another side benefit of a second job interview is figuring out what you're worth um, out there. So what I mean by that is what are other employers willing to pay you um, what other startup packages um, are they willing to provide? And that can kind of give you a sense of what your market value is, which is sometimes hard to glean when you've stayed at the same place um, for, for training. So I don't think that there is any harm in using a second job interview to, to do that um, as long as you – do have some interest in looking at that at other institutions. You should not just solely go to other places um, for the sole purpose of that. But I think that um, if there is even a, a hint of an interest, um, but you may not be fully wholeheartedly dedicated to uh, going to that place, uh, but you're just sort of curious to see, um, I think that most institutions do understand that there is always a lot of uh, get negotiations and give and take when it comes to, you know, applicants coming to apply and then ultimately deciding not, not to go because their home institution offered them um, a startup package. I don't think people take offense at that. I know that a lot of places um, will accept that this is sort of the price of, of doing business. There's always a risk that you, you run. Um, and I don't think that ultimately it's looked at negatively as long as it's done in a mutually respective way. Well, it's good that you spoke so candidly about that. Uh, I think it comes back to your point about honesty. Uh, pulmonary is a small community, as I'm sure many other divisions and specialties are. Yeah, like I said, I think a second interview is really um, this, the point where both parties have to be honest about whether or not this is a relationship that is going to work out. Um, and you also could be surprised that during a second interview, this prospective employee, or sorry, this prospective employer um, might give you a really attractive offer. And in meeting other faculty at that institution, you may be surprised at how much you like it and might decide that this would be a reality for, for you to, to go to. So I do think that the second interview um, should be viewed as an opportunity for both parties to be honest about um, what they want and what they are looking for um, so that, again, 
everyone can decide if this is going to be a working relationship that is sustainable in the long run and ultimately result in the success and satisfaction of the person who's who's applying. Good, that's very helpful. And just to clarify, uh, these types of uh, conversations where you really hammer out these details don't typically take place in a first look interview. Is that correct? Generally not. Um, generally during the first interview there may be conversations in more broad terms. Um, for example, uh, typically when someone comes in at your level, this is generally what the ballpark salary is like and this is generally what we offer them. Um, but obviously more nuanced negotiations go on. And a lot of times these details also don't get hammered out entirely during the, the second, in, second look either. What often happens is that there is a preliminary discussion, um, but then an actual offer letter is issued after the interview, and that is also when um, a lot of the details do wind up um, being explicitly stated. Um, but I think that the opportunity during the second interview is that you can really hear um, what your chair or your chief has in mind, and that is also when you can ask questions um, that are important to you about what you are looking for um, in a new location. One thing I will, again, be perfectly frank about, um, I completely underestimated how expensive it was to live in Los Angeles, and I wish I had been a little bit more explicit about the financial piece of my negotiations when I made that transition from University of Michigan to UCLA. Um, and I wish I had done a little bit more um, had a little bit more frank discussion with my chief at the time um, about what the cost of living would be like. Um, and so I think that, um, again, looking, looking back, um, if you have a chief who is understanding and reasonable, they will understand that this is a very important um, issue for their junior faculty who are looking for new positions, um, the financial piece. So do not be afraid to ask those difficult questions, especially if you are relocating to a expensive living area. Well, that's good. It's it's always nice to have uh, the personal touch with the, this uh, experience and advice. I I think again, it's uh, going to be really useful for a lot of people to hear these. Um, when you're on, let's say, either a first look or a second look interview, uh, what are some important red flags to be aware of or ones that you've come across or went out of your way to look for when uh, going on these interviews? Whenever you are interviewing in an outside place, I can't underemphasize the importance of talking to other people who, have, who are more senior, uh, perhaps your your mentor, if you are you have that type of relationship and you're open and they know that you're you're looking, um, I think that that can be incredibly helpful for helping you gauge the trouble signs um, when you are considering whether or not to take a particular job. Um, it's very different for obviously a clinician versus a researcher for a 
clinician, um, I think I was very fortunate in that I was able to find um, people who were at my stage of life with young families and basically had the conversation where I said, look, it's just the two of us. Um, We want this to be a relationship that works out long term. So I think it's important for us to just be honest here. Um, Do you find this job sustainable? Um, Is this something that you could consider staying in long term? And I think when you put it in those terms that really this is in both our best interests for you to be honest about what clinical practice is really like in this place, um, I think that it becomes much easier for the other person to to be upfront about what are the pluses and minuses because you know you don't want to have someone join your group only to have them leave after six months because they're miserable. Um, so I think um, being able to ask those questions um, about what are some of the concerns that you have about working here is is helpful. They will tell you the red flags um, if they have good sense. From a researcher standpoint, I think that you can also put it in those terms, again, finding someone who might be more at your stage of training, um, they're probably more likely to be, to be honest, but not only just honest, but also more likely to know um, what really is um, creating problems for them. And so they can, again, tell you what are some of the um, barriers that they have to being successful in their research work or their clinical work um, or what it is that they do or do not like about their their department. I also think that um, you can get a huge sense of the culture of an institution by how transparent um, the chiefs and your chair are. If they're someone who come across as, here are all my, you know, these are all the cards I have in front of you, I'm not hiding anything, you can get a real clear sense that this is going to be someone that is really straightforward. If their answers are evasive um, or they always put a positive spin on everything, I think that that to me is a bit of a red flag um, because it sounds too much like they're trying to sell you something as opposed to being authentic and genuine about um, addressing problems that their department or division may be, may be facing. So I guess just off the top of my head, those are just some of the red flags that um, would drive me to not consider a, a position. I think that's great. And the way you described it, I think it's very analogous to uh, fellows transitioning out of their clinical years and into the research lab. And I find myself giving uh, those trainees uh, analogous tips uh, on how to pick a research lab and how to pick a mentor. So it's nice that this general advice carries through for the rest of one's career. So you had mentioned uh, how it is important to be honest and forthcoming about who you are personally and professionally when you approach a first and second job interview and how that really can shape your discussions uh, for a salary and startup package negotiation. Uh, But I was wondering if you had any follow-up comments or advice uh, about specifically how to to approach those discussions on these uh, interviews. So when I um, discuss with a prospective chief 
uh, salary. Um, I often want to first hear their viewpoints about how they set salaries for their faculty. So one question that I might ask is, how are salaries determined at this institution? Um, so your division chief might mention things like there's incentive pay, well this is uh, the base pay, this is the base salary, and then these are the incentives that go into that. And I think that can be very helpful for an applicant to know what are the what is the institution prioritizing here? Are they prioritizing clinical productivity or are they um, emphasizing equally research and clinical um, and so on and so forth? So just having an idea of the pressures financially that your division chief might be under from the institution can be very illuminating for a prospective applicant in understanding why you're being offered the salary that you're being offered. From a startup package negotiation standpoint, I do believe that this is where your mentor can be very helpful in guiding you. Um, some people don't need lab space, but they do need, say, a, a supercomputer or they do need a, um, a technician um, or a statistician to help them complete the research. Um, so one of the pieces of advice I have for you is to be really upfront about what are the people or the skill sets in these people that you need to have in place um, because individuals are always the most expensive part of it um, in order for you to succeed at your work. Um, and if the startup package isn't going to be sufficient to cover the skilled um, technicians that you need um, to be able to complete your research, then I think it is very difficult um, to accept a package like that because ultimately you're going to fail if you don't have the right personnel in place to, to support you. Um, space, I think, is less of a concern for early stage investigators. Um, you know, what you really need at that stage is good mentorship um, and, again, um, hands to help you do do your actual work, whether it's research, whether it's bench research or or clinical research, um, and so I think that um, that can be very helpful in terms of understanding what your startup package should should look like, um, and also get a sense from other junior faculty who might have joined the institution um, what sort of packages they were offered, um, just to get a ballpark idea. And I know it always seems very awkward. Um, to ask that question, but I think that um, if you couch it again in terms of we both want this relationship to work out, we both want um, you know everyone to be able to uh, succeed. Um, so therefore, this is why I, I am asking these you know these questions. Um, I think that um, people are more likely to be to be honest and uh, forthcoming about. Um, uh, about what resources they were provided when they started. All right. Well, Dr. Dang, thank you so much for helping us out with this. This was excellent insight into, into career transitions through the lens of your own experience. So I appreciate you being on with us. 